And here it is asked and answered, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, let us sing from hymn 28, the stanzas 1, 5, and 7. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we have finished with the 12 articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith. But God, the great author and finisher of our faith, he is not finished with us yet. He would have us know and confess of what benefit it is to us when we give our amen to what the catechism calls all this. All that we said we believe without a doubt concerning God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption, as well as God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Actually, the catechism busied us with the great benefits of saying, I believe all this right from Lord's Day 1. Right from Lord's Day 1. For right there you will remember that we confessed our only comfort in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who gave his life and paid the ransom that freed us from the slavery of sin. And then in Lord's Day 7, just to name another Lord's Day, we confess the wonder of God's gift of faith, what faith is, where it comes from, and how necessary it is for our salvation. And so there is then here a natural progression in our Lord's Day when the Catechism questions us individually and also collectively. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? Of what benefit is that now to you? And the answer, one of the shortest in the Catechism, is really a song. You may say it is a song, it is really a shout of joy, a song, a shout full of amazement, really. In Christ I am righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. Well then, let us sing this song, confessing most joyfully 
that we are righteous heirs to life everlasting. That also is the theme of the message. And then we read that this is because this is, in the first place, an amazing declaration. In the second place, that it is rooted in the gracious gift of Christ. And in the third place, is ours only through a living faith. We are righteous heirs to life everlasting. This is an amazing declaration that is rooted in the gracious gift of Christ and is ours only through a living faith. First, that this is an amazing declaration. You know that in world history there have been some groundbreaking, some monumental declarations of sorts. Students of history will know the importance of the Magna Carta that charter way back in the year 1215, requiring a certain King John of England to proclaim certain liberties and elevating what became known as the law of the land. And then, a little closer to home, there is the American Declaration of Independence of July the 4th, 1776, in which it is said in part that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But then perhaps the most well-known declaration for us is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a document which has given enormous power to the courts, which today really have the power to override or to modify many statutes that parliaments have made into law. And yet no human declaration can match the importance and the beauty of what we confess in this Lord's Day. For mankind's declarations certainly also in the American Declaration of Independence as well as the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they are so often based on so-called human rights, the principles of reason, the principles of that period of history called the Enlightenment, and as such, they are prone to error. And yet this statement in our catechism, this Lord's Day this afternoon, that we are righteous before God and heirs to life everlasting is based on God's word. And that means that this declaration cannot fail, that it is true because it is God's word. It's really an indescribable wonder that today there are people, there are you and there am I, people indeed who are church members who may call themselves children of God and heirs of eternal life. It is indeed an amazing wonder. For these people, all of us must confess, as we do in the form for baptism, that we are conceived and born in sin, and that therefore we are children of wrath, of God's wrath. We count ourselves in our old sinful human nature among the godless, among the heathens, who of themselves have no hope of salvation in the world unless they are born again, 
unless God should count us among those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. For if we do not belong to the blood of the Lamb, then indeed we have no hope. We are still in our sin, in our trespasses, and we are worthy of death. And this declaration says that though I am such a grievous sinner, God does not condemn me. No, on the contrary, he declares me free. Declares me free from all sin and shame, justified, innocent. And true, this amazing benefit is mine by grace through faith alone. And yet it is so while my conscience accuses me not just that from time to time I do wrong things, let's say once or twice a week or so, no, but that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil. That's a hard one to accept, isn't it? I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments. I've never kept any of them. I'm still inclined to all evil. And we know this accusation to be just. It is completely just. And this is only the accusation of our conscience, which certainly can't be said to always react in a pure and holy manner to the sins we commit. How then will God himself, God, who is holy, who is just, who is all-knowing, react to our misdeeds and transgressions? He knows my heart, my cheating heart. He knows, indeed, my doubts, my selfish human pride, my reckless abandonment of his word. He sees the mess that I so often make of living a genuine, thankful life. The fact that it can't be said that earning for the eternal Sabbath is evident in my life is not unknown to him. He sees the sin in my personal life, in your business dealings, in my relationship to my wife my children, grandchildren. And no wonder then that the psalmist says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, or as the NIV has it, if you should keep a record of my sins, who could stand? There wouldn't be one. And yet, though I'm still inclined to all evil, bent over double into sin, constantly tempted, enticed to do wrong, Yet, I am counted righteous before God. He looks at me as if I had never committed any sin and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. How is that possible? It would not be strange if you and I would ask, is this some kind of an illusion? Were the authors of the catechism elucidating? When they wrote this, how is it possible that a God who is righteous, who is just, who is holy, whom, as the psalmist says, he cannot bear to look at wrong? How can he dismiss the wrong that I have done and continue to do that? How can this God impute to me, sinner, that means to put on my account, though I am a sinner, Christ's perfect satisfaction his righteousness and holiness, that is, how can he put my Savior's right and truth and perfection on my account as if I never had 
nor committed any sins and was perfectly obedient. Always. How can, how can he do that? Is he then perhaps a God who really isn't all that righteous? Is he one who sees sin through the fingers like you and I can do? Does he put on a righteous public face when actually at heart he's a pushover? Or should we here perhaps speak only of his compassion and his goodness, his great love and kindness? No doubt these things do play a role as well, and yet just listen to what it says in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. There in verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he continues, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And again, in that passage that we read, he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means has been made known, apart from the law. Reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah was allowed to tell the people of Israel when he said in chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And how would that wonder come about? Verse 27 says, Zion shall be redeemed, bought back by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But then that righteousness is not different from his faithfulness and from his goodness to us, but it too is an indication of that amazing relationship called that covenant fellowship that's at the root of God's dealing with us. For believers and their children, all of us, are not nobodies. We are not nobodies, expendables in the eyes of the Lord, mere numbers, nor are we pawns on a chessboard. No, we're God's children, God's children. When you read the form of the baptism of infants, that fact is stressed time and again. It speaks loud and clear of that eternal covenant of grace God establishes with believers and their children. Infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. That's hardly said of people who are nobodies. They're heirs of the kingdom of God. And when we fell into sin because of our first parents' unrighteousness and disobedience in paradise, God came to our rescue. Have you ever noticed how quickly God came to our rescue when we and our first parents were hiding in the bushes, afraid to come front and center to confront God? No, how did God come to our rescue? Not by smoothing things over with some pious talk but with the promise of a savior, Jesus Christ, right there in the ruins of paradise, the promise of a savior, one who would maintain God's justice that our sins be paid for, one who insisted on maintaining this covenant relationship in which justice and God's rights in dealing with sin be maintained. That's what it means by that big word that we read there in Romans chapter 4 about propitiation. 
or indeed as another translation has it, justification. Propitiation. It means indeed that atonement had to be made. God insists on his righteousness. The soul that sins must die. And so God did not, does not excuse our sins. He doesn't say, oh well, no one is perfect. That's what oftentimes people, you and I, are want to say. No one is perfect, you know. God didn't say that. He therefore didn't say it's okay to steal and to curse and to be proud and to be selfish, call each other names. No, he not only says your sins must be paid for, but he says in that psalm we will sing in part at the end of the service that he remembers that we are but dust and that he has compassion on us. For from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness, that's his gift, to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We're reminded of this in Lord's Day 23, this righteous, gracious God he climbs into the judge's bench, as it were, and he gives his verdict, his surprising, his liberating verdict. Yes, his liberating verdict. For seeing that we're also sinful, you would expect that he would treat us as a stern, as an exacting, as a demanding judge. That's what the reformer Martin Luther was so afraid of before he came to understand this liberating righteousness of God. That's why Martin Luther was always doing things like putting rocks in his shoes because he thought if he, he would hurt himself or have his back struck by a whip of sorts, then, then maybe he would come to the point where he would be worthy of receiving God's righteousness. No. No, God doesn't deal with us in that way. He does not excuse our sins, and he doesn't say no one is perfect, but he says from everlasting to everlasting, my love is with you, but you must fear me. Instead of beating us down in his anger, he says, out of my amazing grace, that undeserved favor which is mine to exercise, I pronounce you free. Not guilty, because my son, Jesus Christ, died for you. For all who believe, I open for you the gates of heaven. I will complete for you what I have undertaken in him. The psalmist already who wrote Psalm 138 speaks about that. Your slate is wiped completely clean because of Christ's death on Calvary's cross. Truly, how amazing is this declaration? Let's hear just a bit more about the fact that this benefit is rooted in Christ in the second place. In Romans 3, 23, 24, we are reminded that though we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet, as it says there, we are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We all fall short of God's glory. We lack, we can't possibly measure up to God's holiness, his glory and his justice, that justice as we confess back there in Lord's Day 4 and 5 and 6, in which he demands that all of our sins must be paid for. 
He maintains that. And yet, God himself comes to the rescue. He doesn't leave it to us, in which case we'd still be lost. No, he comes to the rescue. Even when we have hurt him deeply, we're justified. That's like saying we're made whole again, right again in God's eyes. And how? How? Through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Redemption. Uh, it may remain a difficult word, but it simply means to redeem something is to buy it back, to redeem it by means of a payment. If you're broke, you might be able to take a watch or a ring to a hawk shop, somebody who will, who will take that off your hands and, and will give you some money for it. Do you want your ring or your watch back? That is, do you want to redeem it? Then what do you have to do? You have to pay for it. You have to pay. That's what redemption means. It is to buy something back, to, to reclaim it. And that's what Jesus did. He made the payment that bought us back. From what? from the hold that sin and the devil had on us, that ugly grip that sin and the devil had on us. That payment was not one of gold or of silver, but it was his blood. He shed it. He gave it on the cross. The Bible calls it a ransom, a propitiation, freely paid. Oh, in paying it, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered horribly, horribly, just read Galatians 4 and Hosea 13. Not just physically, although that too was terrible. Nobody suffered much more than, than physically. He suffered the agony and the loneliness of hell. No, he did not go into hell, as some people believe. No, he went into the realm of the dead. That's what it means also this afternoon when we confess with the confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. It means he descended into the realm of the dead. But he suffered the agony, the loneliness of hell, especially when his father in those three hours of darkness pushed him away from him. And our Lord Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell especially during that time. Paul calls it a sacrifice of atonement. It was an act of God's justice or righteousness. He required the death of the sinner. He'd said it long ago, the soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Die, not just the first, but the second death. Not just the physical death, but that second death, that loneliness. Now, the astounding thing is, is that Jesus Christ, who is the spotless, the sinless Lamb of God, he suffered that death and that payment for us. He was not forced. No, he was willing to go to the cross. He's the one of whom the psalmist prophesied, I delight to do your will, O my God. Jesus said that with Psalm 40. In his second letter to the church of Corinth, Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 
to be sin for us, to be saturated, as it were, with our sin, our wrongdoing, that we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. He took upon himself all our sin, all our shame, all our disobedience, all our cheating, all our lying. God's only son, saturated with our sin. That we might be declared publicly, publicly, not guilty. Is it any wonder that God's children are obliged to love this God and Savior with all their heart and soul and mind, and to cling to him in true faith and genuine love, to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to him, should not this wondrous act of God declaring salvation and everlasting life be proclaimed to the ends of the earth? Is not, this not the kind of news that indeed will make an eternal difference to people? Is it not the best news the world will ever hear? So that many who may now be lost and lonely in their sins, and there are many who are lost and who are lonely, oh, they may not confess that they are, but they are. But that they might embrace this living Savior, and that they too might stand in awe of this wonder in which sinners are made saints. I know, brothers and sisters, you and I, yes, I too, can get so used to these wonderful facts. They should remain a wonder. Saints we are. Sinners made saints. No, not some super special people, but simply sinners who are saved. That you can say is the definition of a saint. Human beings who are cleansed from all their wrongdoing, having even their sinful natures washed clean from sin and stain and having access to eternal life. But... As the Catechism rightly says, only through faith, through a genuine, living faith, without which that life will always be beyond reach. Let us hear it in the third place. Through a living faith. One of the church's hymns, one that we will sing in part at the end of the service, says, Faith clings to Jesus' work alone and rests in him unceasing, without let up. That's a true faith. It looks away from oneself and it doesn't say, my faith saves me, with the accent indeed on my, my faith saves me. Now, in another confession of the church, namely the Belgic Confession, Article 22, we confess, yes, we rightly say with Paul that we are justified by faith, apart from observing the law. Yet, meanwhile, strictly speaking, we do not mean that faith as such justifies us, for faith is only the instrument we confess there. It is the instrument by which we embrace Christ our righteousness. And therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And faith is the instrument. What a wonderful instrument it is that keeps us with him in the communion of all his benefits. And that makes faith such an amazing, such a wonderful and indispensable thing. That's why parents may stand in awe when they see something 
as far as human beings can tell, when they see something of that faith growing in their children and grandchildren, that's truly amazing. When indeed that child or that grandchild will say and will sing, I love the Lord, the fount of life and grace, and appears indeed to mean it. It is an amazing, a wonderful, and it is an indispensable thing, for it must be a true faith. So not one that's a sham, not one that's an attempt to fool God with some outward piety, let's say. It's possible that human beings do that. They put on a very pious face. Let us say if there is a home visit and the elders ask some questions. Can involve even a few half-hearted promises of obedience. No, a faith that is true, that is real, that's evident in how we live. A faith that shows genuine love for God and for one's neighbor. One which treasures God's word, his promises, and his demands. In that same article 22 of the Belgic Confession, we say that if this faith is all in him, that is, in that one who has Jesus Christ through faith, that person has complete salvation. Wow. If you have that faith and embrace Christ Jesus you already have complete salvation, even though there is still a ways to go, including that celebration that comes to us at the end of our life or when we enter into the presence of God or he returns indeed. And that's not a maybe. That's not a possibility. No, it's a reality that you have today. John 3 says it very clearly. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have salvation. You have the most precious, the most beautiful, the most astounding gift in the world. That faith treasures God's word, his promises, and his demands. Indeed, and his demands. The only thing that is still to come is what we may call our graduation or our perfection. Oh, students look forward to their graduation, do they not? Especially after they've finished a number of years in elementary and high school. What kind of graduation it is it going to be when on the day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns, we will be together with all believers who have gone before us. When indeed we will sit on thrones, as the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, and we will judge angels which must mean the evil angels elsewhere. The day you die to be with Christ and the angels and the church which has preceded us to heaven, or that day when we will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. <laughs> How short a time is that? Twinkle. In the twinkling of an eye to inherit a new earth cleansed from all and every unrighteousness, that every and all unrighteousness with which it is so burdened today. A new earth, that's our final destination, when all the benefits that are already our own in Christ will come to fruition, as it were, in a way that no eye has seen nor ear heard. To that end, the church prays. 
in that closing plea, even at the baptism of God's children when they were still very young, may he or she forever praise and magnify you and your son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. The church, including your parents, your grandparents, pray that prayer when, when, when you were still so little. They indeed, they asked, they hoped, they prayed that you might forever praise the Lord God and his son Jesus Christ together with the Holy Spirit. So as the catechism emphasizes in question and answer 61, I am righteous before God, not on account of the worthiness of my faith, no. Not that I can boast. I'm better than anyone else. I have salvation coming because of me, no, but only because of Christ and his satisfaction, his righteousness, his holiness, which he has made mine. He's made it mine in the, in the way of faith. That faith is his gift. Its exercise is God's gift. May we then treasure this righteousness. May we rejoice in it. And may we sing. Yes, may we shout today and tomorrow. Christ Jesus, full atonement made and brought to us salvation. Each Christian, therefore, may be glad and build on this foundation. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.